Coming right up, a special edition of Straight Talk. Our guest tonight, Douglas Brinkley, noted historian, award-winning author, and history commentator for CBS News. Straight Talk is brought to you in part by the Port of Long Beach, a leader in international trade and environmental stewardship. And the Press-Telegram, your local news leader for over 100 years. And Scan Health Plan, for your health and independence. Join us for tonight's edition of Straight Talk. And now your host, Art Levine. Good evening and welcome to Straight Talk. We have a fantastic show for you tonight. Our guest for the entire show is noted historian, best-selling author, uh, Douglas Brinkley, who's here in town to be the distinguished speaker at the CSULB Distinguished Speaker Series. Doug, welcome to Straight Talk. Well, thanks. Great to be here. Okay. We're delighted that you're, you've come to our town, and you are an expert on presidents and presidential leadership, and we'd like to dialogue with you about what is important and uh, uh, tell us about some of the presidents that stand out to you. Well, you know, every year uh, a group of American historians rank who was best, and we always put Lincoln number one because no matter how bad another president has it, you know, right now Barack Obama's having to deal with Putin and, you know, you've got problems in Syria, no matter how bad it is, Lincoln had it worse. Uh, the fact that he was president when you had 600,000 Americans die in the Civil War, half the country leaving you. And also, uh, what a, he represents Lincoln kind of a moral excellence um, in, in his written documents are almost like founding documents, the Emancipation, uh, proclamation, Gettysburg Address, the second inaugural, for example. Second is usually George Washington, uh, simply because he said, I'm not going to seek another term. By stepping down, Washington allowed democracy really to take root in the country. And third, who I'm writing about right now is Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who, who won four times, 32 in 1932, 36, 40, and 44, and guided us through the Great Depression and, and World War II. And how does President Obama fit into that pattern? Hard to, you know, we usually don't uh, judge them, Art, until 25 years uh, after presidency because that's when the Freedom of Information Act starts allowing documents to come in. And you can start kind of seeing what really happens. Just take Obamacare, for example. If a Republican wins in 2016, <laughs> they'll gut it and it'll yeah. be seen as a, f a failure. If a Democrat wins, say Hillary Clinton, she might keep trying to improve it, and it might stand out like Social Security as a, as a great uh, American service, but it's, it's premature on him. He has a couple things, big moments. I mean, two women appointed to the Supreme Court, killing of Osama bin Laden, and like Dwight Eisenhower getting us out of Vietnam, he was trying to, or has got it, gotten us out of Afghanistan and Iraq. But, um, it's going to be hard to tell. Usually if you win re-election like Obama did, you fare a little better, uh, even though the second term is more difficult, but at least you're not being rejected by the voters. Second terms are traditionally difficult for, for many presidents. Killer for a lot of them in recent times. Um, look at Richard Nixon. I mean, when, think about Nixon. He wins big in, in 68 over Humphrey and George Wallace, 72, the biggest landslide ever and the governor then Watergate kicks in in 73, and he's gone by 74. Reagan survived his big crisis with Iran-Contra on a famous address of 
grabbing the microphone and talking to the American people and uh, explaining the situation, got a bounce in the polls. But uh, second terms are difficult because uh, people figure your clock's running out and uh, they're not going to stake the future on you. You're from Texas, and we had, of course, President Bush Sr. and George W. from Texas. How do they fit in? And Dwight Eisenhower, born in Texas. Not really? Many people not don't realize it, yeah. Um, 41 is going to go down as a is a, a, a above average president Bush the elder because when he was president the Berlin Wall came down he oversaw the breakup of the Soviet Union German reunification the liberation of Kuwait apprehension of Noriega and Panama very big four years in American foreign policy um, but he of course didn't get reelected but usually what we do, I'm noticing in our country, we pound on presidents, whether it's George W. Bush or Obama, who it doesn't matter, Clinton with impeachment. And, and then when they get older, or particularly when they die, we do these coronations of <laughs> yeah. them again for like a week of well, that's true. how Human beings they were. generally yes, too. It is. But, uh, but uh, Bush 41 uh, was a true national hero, volunteered yeah. uh, in the war as a youngest pilot, I think, uh, head of the CIA, UN ambassador. I mean, he was the real thing. Real thing. And a real class act. And his son, uh, uh, different but very likable. Likable. Also, one, one was able to win two terms where his father wasn't able. That's right. But the, the inter, you know, I think his, his bullhorn moment in 9-11 was quite iconic. It was. But should we have gone into Iraq and gone after Saddam Hussein um, from an economic point of view? Was it worth that becoming the big issue in the early 20th century? Right now, people feel no. He's not ranked very high. But look, time changes yeah. things. As I mentioned, when more documents are out, what in the age of terror that we live in now, it's sort of, it's hard to say, but if you're George W. Bush, you couldn't say it till the end, but after 9-11, America wasn't, wasn't hit. You know, he, whether you're Republican or Democrat, he and his administration did keep us safe. I mean, the, the, the odds of us not being hit again after 9-11, everyone was waiting, and yet it didn't happen. Now, I don't know, was, were we lucky or because of the Homeland steps we took? The Department of Homeland Security gets created. We started really all of the inconveniences of our airports, uh, which really isn't that bad. We all yeah. complain about it. I travel a lot. But that tightening up of security in America um, really happened under George W. Bush. But again, that, that Iraq and then the fact that the economy tanked on him uh, in yeah. his last months in office is going to make it hard for him to rehabilitate himself, I think, too high. But you mentioned that iconic moment in New York City with the firefighter in that pit. I mean, I thought he was at his best, the speech at the cathedral. The whole country was behind him. We went into Afghanistan. We, we, we routed them. We got the Taliban out. And then, for whatever reason, went into Iraq. And there are documents, I believe, that indicate that from the beginning of the administration, long before 9-11, they wanted regime change in Iraq. Well, that's right. And Colin Powell used to, it's called the Powell Doctrine, and it's that if you break it, you own it. With a, a great military like we have, you can go into a place like Iraq, you can break it, but then you gotta build a democracy there in that part of the world, and we struggle with that. That was something we didn't do well in Vietnam, um, for example, so it, it, it's, um, it's, it was a tough call by um, George W. Bush, but he's also going up a little bit in the polls, yeah. and he spends a lot of time with the wounded warriors and the like, but you're right, we have, we have three presidential libraries in Texas, the, jo <laughs> the Johnson one, Lyndon, 
I've been and, there. And that's the, and then the, um, at Southern Methodist, the George W. Bush Library and George Herbert Walker Bush is wow. in College Station. Well, now, yet unspoken are, of course, the Clintons. And Bill Clinton re-elected, peace and prosperity, the economy's booming, uh, uh, foreign policy, with a few exceptions, in Bosnia, relatively clean, and then turns it over to Gore, and Gore keeps him away from the campaign and loses. What was that all about? Well, it was, it was called a foolish move by Al Gore. I mean, Bill Clinton still had high public uh, approval ratings, and I, if he would have simply unleashed Bill Clinton in Florida, Gore would have been president. The climate change would have been a different kind of issue than it's sort of nobody now really wants to deal with it. Um, but that's what history is by a whisker. Bill Clinton looks better and better now because his biggest accomplishment is that budget surplus. At the time, we had won the Cold War. The Cold War seemed to be over. And it's like, well, what did he do so great? What are you going to rush to Little Rock, to the Clinton Library, and see the NAFTA pen <laughs> under glass? You know, what did he do? And then you had the... the well, welfare reform. Welfare reform. There's a lot there. It wasn't big, heroic stuff. But boy, in this day and time, when we, we're, take, we take that balanced budget yeah. and the fact that he was able to work with Congress and get that done. And of course, now it seems to be Hillary's turn. Well, I, Hillary is just, I've never seen a, a person so prepared as um, Bill and Hillary Clinton are. They're friends that they've developed in their networking in every branch of American life. And it will be quite a historic time if you get the first, uh, first woman president and the thought of Bill Clinton back in the White House. And it will in many ways trump um, the Bush dual legacy and um, Obama being the first African-American president. I mentioned before we went on air that we, we saw Hillary and Bill at our law school reunion and, and she got the highest award from our law school. And she just looked poised and ready and grounded and radiant. And uh, uh, you think she's going to be- unflappable. Yes. Um, you know, I think her only challenge is going to be if she's not doesn't have an opponent and just gets coronated as the Democratic nominee, uh, it might mean a lot of the media energy is getting excited about whoever it is, Governor Kasich of Ohio or Rand Paul or Rick Perry or, um, you know, um, Jeb Bush or whatever. But right now, um, I think I've talked to a lot of women that declare themselves independents and they say, look, I even vote Republican, but I'll vote for Hillary because the time for a woman is upon us. And in the last campaign where she ran against Obama, uh, the first half of her campaign wasn't uh, all that strong. And by some uh, his, his gift of speech kind of knocked her down a bit. But I think a lot of people respected how she stayed with it in the second half of the campaign. It was too late, and, uh, but, uh, but she grew in that second half of the campaign. Well, and you're touching on what might be a weakness. She's going to have to be a little looser and a little more candid. Uh, you know, I don't know if you recall back in 08, but they were giving her training on how to smile and how to relax a little. Oh my God. Now, I don't blame her. It's tough on those debate forums, and you're like, and you're, because if you say one thing wrong, you're going to get hammered. But she's going to have to be a little more fluid in, when the debates come around than she was in 08. Did Obama uh, become victorious in that because of his incredible verbal skills and intelligence? Uh, how did that happen? Part of it, but also um, there was Bush fatigue. 
And there's some, once in a while we just get sick of all the commonplace names. And here was such a fresh face coming out of Illinois. Uh, people would recognize this will be very historic that we'd be able to elect somebody like Barack Obama. His inauguration is one of the great moments in American history. Yes. I have three kids and we have a placemat of all these white presidents, you know, where we call <laughs> James Madison, Monroe, and all, and then it's Barack Obama. Wow. And it was, it, it was, it was uh, he shattered uh, a glass ceiling. Did he it, use uh, maybe a little bit of, of, of guilt in white America uh, as a safe black candidate uh, that you could vote for? And uh, Well, you, you know, certainly um, that, that there was a feeling that civil rights had been a big part of our time. Yeah. Uh, we had Martin Luther King Day. Some of the original guilt in America is about slavery. And, the, sure. and, and here the, it, it made people feel good that yeah. we look, we, we aren't, we can do this. And the whole world felt that. I mean, he yeah. ended up getting a Nobel Peace Prize simply really for getting We're elected. Getting elected you know? yeah. Okay, we'll be dis uh, continuing this great discussion after we pause for these messages. At the Port of Long Beach, we're not only delivering jobs, smart ideas, and forward-thinking environmental initiatives, we're also delivering opportunity for all of Southern California. Oh, and a clearer horizon line. To learn more, go to polb.com, the port of Long Beach, thinking outside the docks. Hello, I'm Jessica Hardy, a proud Long Beach native and a member of the USA Swimming national team. Having spent much of my life in water, I've developed a deep appreciation for the valuable role that this precious resource plays in our lives. In recent years, California's water supply has become unreliable. To address this reality, Long Beach residents have dramatically reduced their water use through permanent lifestyle changes. In doing so, Long Beach has made itself a leader in water conservation. As I work hard to achieve my personal goal of qualifying for the 2012 Summer Olympics, I encourage you to continue your tremendous efforts to use water in smart and responsible ways. So join me and your fellow Long Beach residents in strengthening the water conservation movement. By making small but significant changes in our water use habits, together we can ensure that we have a reliable water supply for many generations to come. In 1975, Brian Redman wins the first race on the streets of Long Beach, and great names like Andretti, Unser, and Tracy continued the Long Beach tradition. Now, April 11th through the 13th, the Toyota Grand Prix of Long Beach celebrates 40 years as America's number one street race with another exciting weekend of the IndyCar Series. Six other races, three days of family fun, free concerts, and much more. Don't miss it. 40 years and still accelerating. Renaissance Leisure Fair for a joust and the turkey leg. Fun for the whole family. There's food, performances of all kinds. Food! Hundreds of shops offering unique handmade works of art. A collection of games. Food! Play Renquest and live your own legend. We like turkey. Come, join in the fun. Renaissance Pleasure Fair. The Renaissance Pleasure Fair, where fantasy rules. R-E-N-F-A-I-R dot com. Welcome back to In Conversation with our special guest, Douglas Brinkley, noted historian and best-selling author. President Eisenhower, I like Ike, 
I just got one of those buttons from his great-granddaughter for sending a modest contribution oh. to the Eisenhower Library, but uh, he was a hero of World War II, led the coalition, twice elected president against a very uh, strong opponent, Adlai Stevenson, who was a great resume, but Ike just wiped him out. Well, Eisenhower's having a great revisionism right now. People are thinking he's a much better president. Um, it gets back to that uh, when documents start coming out. We now see that he was very hands-on. Many people thought John Foster Dulles was running the foreign policy and Nixon, who was vice president, had a role. Now we're seeing Ike was the mastermind of everything. And it, it was a great uh, decade, the 50s, of peace and prosperity. He yeah. pulled us out of Korea. And in response to something like Sputnik, when the Soviets were looked like they had getting the edge in space, he founded NASA. Even his farewell address about the industrial military complex is becoming one of the big, prescient, really. big precedent in, in so many ways. So uh, Eisenhower is being in, admired by liberals today, which is uh, astonishing. And I give him credit for something that he didn't do. There was a lot of pressure to go in to bail the French out in Vietnam when they lost Bien Bien Phu. And he said, no, we don't want to get involved. He kept us out of what later became the Vietnam War. Excellent point. And that's a big reason why I think a lot of the left of the anti-Vietnam War left is saying, look, Ike was smart enough. It really was Kennedy and Johnson's war. And certainly um, Nixon felt that. I've been listening to the Nixon tapes recently. Oh, yes. I'm doing a piece on, on them uh, for Vanity Fair this summer. And um, it's, um, it's remarkable how he's blaming Nixon, Kennedy, and Johnson. Look, I'm, I'm inheriting this Vietnam War, and Eisenhower never would have gotten us into this mess. Yeah. And Johnson, after the Kennedy assassination, felt that he could not be the first Democrat to lose a war. And he, he got stuck in that. And I don't think his heart was in it, because his real passion was the great society. But he wasn't going to allow a Democrat to lose a war, and they kept doubling down until until Walter Cronkite, who you <laughs> most recently wrote a book on, and uh, uh, Cronkite finally said uh, it's not working. And I think uh, Johnson famously said, well, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the country. Well, look, the um, Vietnam was such a difficult situation, and, and, and CBS News opened up a, a bureau in Vietnam. And so Morley Safer did a big story about our Marines that were the bad guys burning yeah. huts down. And Johnson got infuriated by this. And so you started getting the media being critical of Vietnam. But in 1968, when Cronkite had enough, was when the Tet Offensive came. And it showed that the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong still had a lot of fight in them. And so it ended up, uh, uh, Cronkite ended up playing quite a role that year. I noticed after, so the next year, 69, he had won every award, all the Edward R. Murrow kind of awards yes. for broadcasting. This was your most recent book. Tell us why you chose to write a book on, on Walter Cronkite. Well, you know, I may have met a lot of people and they say, uh, oh, I remember the Kennedy assassination as if they were there. Uh, what they remember is Walter Cronkite telling them about Kennedy's death, Cronkite covering Martin Luther King, Cronkite covering Vietnam. Um, and his papers had just opened up at the University of Texas in Austin, and he was a voluminous pack rat kind of character. You know, so there was a lot of uh, journals, photos, diaries and all. And then it was so visual, I almost wanted to do the book as a kind of an online book because you can yes. use that footage and all in a way. I just didn't have the resources to do that sort of thing. Uh, and also, I had known Cronkite a little bit, and, and that generation that were getting elderly, and I got to interview a lot of people. 
I mentioned Morley, Morley Safer, but a whole um, group of people like um, Andy Rooney was his best oh, friend sure. in World War II. He's gone now, but I got to interview them just in the nick of time. And, and Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. And CBS then was the blue chip network. CBS News towered over everything. Uh, unlimited budget. Uh, uh, 60 Minutes was, was, was riding high, and this was the place to be, and Walter Cronkite was the man. Well, that's right, Art. And I argue in the book that when Cronkite starts on television in 1950, and then he steps down as anchor in 1981, that was the, the real time when CBS just dominated. I mean, they, yeah. because some uh, places only got NBC and CBS, and some rural areas only got CBS. Uh, ABC was just a little upstart. When Cronkite leaves in 81, it almost exactly coincides with the internet revolution in journalism and cable TV news. So I doubt ever again there'll be like this Cronkite-like figure that everybody turns into. I mentioned Kennedy being killed. Well, a lot of countries, when a president of the United States gets their, their head blown off, and their brains in the lap of his wife in such a heinous moment, there'll be riots in the street. Yeah. In America, we all turned on Cronkite, who yes. became like a pastor or a rabbi or grief counselor as well as a journalist. Well, I can remember vividly to this moment exactly what I was doing when I heard the news and then watching for three days nonstop. This was before 24-hour news cycles, but and it was CBS I was and He watching. became like the Iron Man because he'd keep going on and it wasn't just reporting like he did that, you know, president's been shot in Dallas and then Kennedy's death, but uh, who killed Kennedy, then who is Lee Harvey Oswald, who's Jack Ruby, where is um, the First Lady, it, has there been an autopsy, where is Kennedy going to be buried, Hyannisport or Arlington, what world leaders are coming, what's happening to the Kennedy kids, on and on and on, and everybody leaned forward, um, the whole country, to find out um, the drama and, and the tragedy of that uh, November of 1963. And the, the awesome solemnness and, and in a strange way the beauty of, of, of that funeral procession and the respect and the, the horse without the rider and the carriage. Uh, uh, Jackie planned it and I think she used, she modeled it after Lincoln. It was done, done by her in a, with grace and in a flawless way like you suggest. I think there are these 50th anniversaries we're all hitting now, yes. and those are a big marker. So we had 50 years of Kennedy's assassination, and in 2014 it's really 50 years of the Civil Rights Act of Lyndon Johnson. But it, it's not, the next big one is going to be Martin Luther King, 50 years of his death, and Bobby Kennedy's death, 68, in, in 2018, but then Neil Armstrong going to the moon, and in, in, um, I think the moon shot was the other time besides Kennedy assassination when everybody just sort of tuned into an event. That was in 1969, I think, and we were watching it in July, One Step for Mankind, and by some, a lot of people did believe we actually got to the moon. They thought it was a TV studio. There was a movie out by, with that thesis, and, and yet uh, we haven't, well, we have gone past it, but uh, uh, there was a bit of a slowdown in the space well, program. A huge slowdown because once we at Apollo 11 went and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldwin did the walk, then others started going and going and people said, ah, it's another moonwalk. It hurt NASA a great deal. Then you had the Challenger disaster. Yes. Now we're kind of broke and NASA's getting crippled all the time and China is moving so, so quickly into space and we were trying to work with Russia for a while. 
So it's kind of open if a president would step up and maybe the United States and China engage on going to Mars. Uh, all of the former astronauts that are still alive are advocating Mars exploration, not just to go to Mars, but, but by, by trying to, all these new technologies get developed. And if China becomes more prominent in our foreign policy, here in Long Beach, we have a world-class port, uh, and we do already significant trading with China, that can only be very economically beneficial. Well, I was mentioning the Nixon tapes, and for all of his foul language and Watergate and all, there are these brilliant parts of the tapes when he's, he's being a global strategist, and he's saying by the mid-21st century, there are gonna be two superpowers, United States and China, and we better face it now. And there is some goodwill between the United States and China. I mean, if you go back to the 1890s when all of Europe and, and everybody was trying to cut up China, the United States called for the territorial integrity of China. Um, and it, so I recently was in Sunnylands in Palm Springs. I've been there. I had never gone. I brought my wife and kids to see really the desert garden there. More, but busloads of people from China were going so friendly and so um, glad to meet Americans. I, you don't yeah. feel Russians coming over here <laughs> greeting you with that kind of warmth. So there yeah. may be something um, that we can really develop we better in the next decades. And Nixon, to his great credit, no matter what you view his ultimate presidency, did the opening with Kissinger to China. And only a devout anti-communist like Nixon could have dared take that risk. That was the big point. Yeah, he had the anti-communist credentials to do it. And that was a big game changer yes. in 1972. And yeah. um, he, he really was able to do business with Mao and Cho Enlai. Yeah. And um, you know, that legacy of Nixon in China, I think, is going to look, um, look bigger in history as the decade, as Watergate gets more remote and looks like a nickel and dime burglary. Let me ask you, uh, as we come to the end of this wonderful half hour together, Looking into the future, uh, what, what challenge do you think we are going to face and our next president or presidents are going to have to face that we're not really yet anticipating? Well, I'm just not quite sure, and none of us are, how to grab climate change by the scruff of the neck. Um, but, you know, are we really dealing with the time of a lot of increased um, disasters, more drought, more hurricanes. I mean, President Obama, who has all the NASA and NOAA and all this information, is connected to Hurricane, uh, or corrected, uh, uh, connected Sandy in the smashing of New York to climate change. That climate issue is one I, w I think we're going to have to find out uh, whether people stop, uh, move inland a little bit, are there going to be zones, and it may be that water becomes the new oil and that you'll see in the coming 50 years more people moving to the Great Lakes uh, region. Well, they say they fight over gold, but they kill over water. Water is, uh, and of course here in Los Angeles, without the aqueduct system and everything, no L.A. That's right, and uh, you, you got it. And uh, I have a feeling we'll be able to always have pipelines for water in some yeah. degrees, but nevertheless, uh, uh, the, the, I'm very bullish about the United States because of our northern border with Canada. And yeah. if you look at the natural resources the United States and yes. Canada share, including the Great Lakes and all that fresh water, yeah. uh, we're big players in the 21st century. Well, on that positive note, Doug Brinley, thank you so much for joining us here on In Conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Okay. And thank you at home for being our guest. This is Art Levine saying goodnight from the campus of California State University, Long Beach. Straight Talk has been brought to you by the Port of Long Beach, the Press-Telegram, and Scan Health Plan. And remember, 
Straight Talk is viewable 24-7 at straighttalktv.com.